This is the current federal tax developments for the week of December the 27th, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, broadcasting here from Phoenix, Arizona on this Christmas weekend and looking at what's gone on in the week prior in the area of federal taxes. And this, we're going to look at a few things happening here. Uh, first, we're going to talk about the fact that we have the IRS, basically, and Malta uh, teaming up to issue competent authority guidance looking to shut down what had been a promoted tax shelter that actually got written up in the Wall Street Journal this past year. IRS also issued guidance instructing lenders not to issue Forms 1099-C. Those are normally issued when there is a cancellation of indebtedness during the year. Lenders are not to issue those forms to uh, basically on student loans where that debt will not be taxable under provisions that were included in the American Rescue Plan Act this year. And we'll talk about what the IRS did there and why they're doing it. We'll also take a look at an IRS memo that comes to the conclusion that the definition of rental for the passive activity rules under Section 469 will not control whether or not an activity is a rental real estate, a rental of real estate, under the rules for the self-employment tax. We'll also talk about the IRS notice issued this week, or basically IRS guidance issued this week, that was the fact they're going to be issuing letters this year, describing the letters they're going to issue, both for the advanced child tax credit that people received in 2021, as well as the third economic impact payment uh, that they received in this year, both of which will need to have to prepare 2021 returns for those receiving those items or just not receiving them, so we know they didn't. And finally, we'll discuss the fact that the IRS announced this week that the Hurricane Ida relief uh, that had initially been scheduled to expire for a number of those covered by it on January 3rd will instead expire into February. We'll talk about why that happened. And while the IRS doesn't tell us why it happened, I suspect it has to do with something that's going on right now that the IRS might not have considered when they extended due dates, even for individual returns, on to January 3rd of 22 for a return that was originally due on October 15th of 21. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. Okay, so we'll be talking about those issues today. So let's go ahead and take a look at where we stand. We're going to start here with the competent authority agreement between the United States and Malta issued on December the 21st. And this involves pension plans under the law in Malta. Right In July, the IRS added Malta pension plans to their dirty dozen uh, documents for basically tax schemes that uh, apparently the IRS believes are, shall we say, somewhat abusive. And they're talking about particular natures of these pensions. Now, the Wall Street Journal had an article back in August that went into the operation of these programs that some people would have marketed, especially to high net worth individuals that had, let's say, some highly appreciated assets that they would prefer not to ever pay tax on again on, but they want to liquidate that asset, convert it into something else, cash, take the payment stream, and preferably be able to do so without ever paying tax. And some individuals studying the United States Malta Income Tax Treaty, which is, I'm sure, something most of you did not stay up nights doing, but some people do, uh, discovered what they felt was a clear loophole that could work to allow individuals to transfer those appreciated assets into this pension plan in Malta that they would establish for themselves, uh, then convert the asset over to cash and effectively take it out cash-free, certainly without having to recognize the current income on the sale of the asset. And it had to do with a what is basically a treaty between the U.S. and Malta. Now, in the normal world, how this would happen is if you were a you know an individual who was a citizen of Malta, was also subject to U.S. taxation because you were a resident here, you were a citizen of Malta, you had this pension plan from Malta, 
Uh, generally, everything is income right under Section 61 unless it's somehow excluded. Well, as part of the negotiation, in essence, to make this quote-unquote fair, the United States and Malta entered into a treaty, and part of the treaty says that essentially the U.S. will not impose a tax on those activities related to the Malta pension plan for somebody who is, you know, has one of those plans. Now, what those studying the plans kind of noticed was that nothing under the law in Malta really required you to live in Malta in order to establish one of these plans, uh, nor did it require you to, you know, have earned income, shall we say, from Malta. So you could establish one of these plans, even if you were a U.S. citizen who never planned to actually relocate to Malta, never lived in Malta, had nothing to do with Malta, but you're going to establish this pension plan under the Malta law. And the assets even do not have to be in Malta or be held in Malta. So you can still have the assets held in the U.S. You could, in theory, have a, you know, basically have the cash and other items you bought with it in the U.S., none of that was required under their program. And of course, since it escaped tax, it seemed like, well, this is a wonderful way. If you've got a few hundred million dollars worth of gain that you want to convert over to cash, you might decide that this sounds like a good idea. Well, the United States and Malta, as I said this week, issued what's called competent authority agreement. Now, the IRS back in July had noted, as I said, that this was a potentially abusive use of the U.S.-Malta tax treaty. And in the uh, basically competent authority agreement that was issued on the 21st, they basically recite has come to their agreement, the two countries did, that under the, under the Retirement Pensions Act of 2011, that people were basically, or you know, U.S. citizens and residents were established personal retirement schemes with no limitation based on earnings from employment or self-employment and are making contributions in these forms other than cash. And questions have arisen uh, in the United States about whether these retirement programs are pension funds for purposes of the treaty. And what the CAA rules in this point is, they confirm that a fund scheme or arrangement established in a contracting state, that would be the U.S. or Malta, that except in the case of a qualified rollover from pension fund established in the, na- in the same contracting state, meaning you had to have a pension plan in Malta that was pre-existing, that you were then going to roll over into this retirement program in Malta, right? If such a program that got its funds from other than a rollover from a pre-existing pension plan is allowed to accept contributions from a participant in a form other than cash or does not limit contributions by reference to earned income from personal service, including self-employment of the participant or spouse, is not operated principally to administer or provide pension or retirement benefits within the meaning of paragraph 1K of Article 3 of the treaty, therefore is not a pension fund. By extension, therefore does not get this treatment. And guys, you're going to have to pay tax on this number. Now, the IRS in the news reliefs actually came down and said, you know, that, you know, you really shouldn't enter into these arrangements because that they misconstrue. It's a problem. And then they start saber rattling a bit. Towards the end of the news release that announced this, The IRS states that IRS enforcement, both the civil and criminal divisions, is committed to pursuing abuse and those who market and participate in abusive transactions. Notice the reference there to the criminal division. Obviously, that is meant to be a saber rattling. That is meant to tell you that if you get in this, there may be significant consequences beyond what maybe you would have normally been willing to put up with. That there is a risk here beyond simply, oh, we'll do it. If we get caught, we'll pay back the money. Uh, Expect the IRS to be rather nasty on this. Now, the IRS does suggest that if you have entered into such an arrangement, that you should seek independent advice uh, regarding what your next step should be. And I do think that's appropriate advice at this point. And here's what I want to say. First thing is, obviously, this does not definitively establish that those programs set up initially are not valid. 
Okay, I'm going to state that right up front. That could only be established by actually the IRS challenging going to court. However, it's also fairly clear, as the Wall Street Journal article made clear, because they quoted a number of advisors who, who were essentially, many of which said, well, I understand the concept, but I'm not really recommending it because I just think the smell is so bad that it's going to come down. You know, in essence, it won't live to see another day. And maybe they're right, maybe they're not. But I do think that any advisor who was telling a client you should think about this clearly should have made clear to the client that this was a high-risk strategy and the IRS is highly unlikely to be happy with it. And if you don't succeed in this strategy, uh, there's a good chance they are going to impose significant penalties. Uh, you know, and conceivably, they might even get mad enough to try to argue for a criminal indictment if they believe you were trying to fraudulently, you know, get out of paying your taxes. And to be totally honest about that, a lot would depend on the size of it and how much is involved. Now, if a client was told that this was a slam dunk, that tells me pretty much they really, really, really need to go get additional outside advice. Because if they were not told about the high-risk nature of this arrangement, and the only person they have gotten advice from is somebody who only made money if they went forward with the arrangement, off the arrangement, then I think, yeah, getting third-party advice is key. Let's be honest. We've had a number of cases over the years, going back to the neonatology case, uh, where the tax courts made it very clear that relying on advice from an advisor who has a vested interest in the taxpayer undertaking the transaction, meaning literally that person does not get paid unless the taxpayer goes forward with the transaction or that advisor is being wholly compensated by the, you know, the outfit that's pushing this, you know, whoever is pushing this, even if they're not giving the advice, they're referring you to their attorney who, you know, an attorney they picked, uh, who is telling you it's all good and wonderful. Uh, presumably, the courts have decided that, you know, come on, a reasonable person should recognize that somebody who only gets compensated if you go forward with this might have a conflict of interest, shall we say, in terms of totally evaluating this and being, you know, totally above board on how good or bad it is. And secondly, obviously, the promoter is only going to refer you to counsel who they have opinion shop, shall we say. And so they know the answer you're going to get. So this is not just getting somebody who's saying, okay, yeah, I'll look at this. So definitely, if you've been involved in this, I would say, you know, especially if your client comes in, they've been involved in this or something like it, and it was promoted as a slam dunk, uh, definitely they should get advice. I will say, though, that advice should come from an attorney to start with. Why? Well, I really think the IRS will have trouble carrying a criminal indictment against somebody who bought this. In most cases, I can't say for sure they won't. And the mere fact they've raised that criminal theory and that criminal threat uh, suggests that it's probably best if the taxpayer first gets advice from somebody who has attorney-client privilege on criminal matters. While the preparer privilege exists for CAs and for CPAs, I should say, and EAs, not chartered accountants, but CPAs and EAs on tax issues, it does not extend to criminal tax matters. And that's the hitch. You know, if the IRS makes it criminal matter, then you could become your client's own worst enemy because, in essence, the IRS can get the information from you and it's not protected. So I definitely do that. Now, what normally happens is the attorney who understands the criminal issues, the potential exposure, will come to a conclusion about the odds of there being a criminal problem, knowing all facts. And the other danger always in a case like this, it might not look to you like to be any criminal risk at all. But then you come in, the client tells you about things that suddenly like, oh, well, that actually changes the whole idea. So, yes, the attorney can clear all that stuff pretty easy. And then it may still be bounced back because most attorneys probably aren't thrilled with doing a lot of compliance work and amended returns and all that other fun stuff. So you may see it still bounce back to the CPA or EA to take care of that. But, you know, ju just be aware. And 
always remind your clients about any sort of marketed shelter routine. Uh, you know, remember the party's marketing it. You really need to go ask yourself, you know, am I really getting independent advice here or should I go seek the advice of another party who would help us in this realm? Because definitely it's a problem and you definitely cannot just totally rely on advice you receive from somebody who is only going to be paid if you go forward with the transaction, right? That's the real problem. Okay. Now, let's go ahead and let's talk about this notice next that the IRS issued 2022-01. Yes, we are now far enough along in the year that our notices have 2022 dates on them because that date is based on when it is going to be published in the cumulative bulletin. And I know that, you know, the cumulative bulletin is kind of a quaint concept these days because we don't really get that printed version. Although the IRS does do a PDF version that they publish regularly. And so while the IRS puts these out and on their website, you know, when they're ready, they then get scheduled into the cumulative bulletin. This notice will be in the first cumulative bulletin issued in 2022, which I believe would be a week from this coming Friday. And okay, you know, so that's why it's a 2022 notice. But this is notice 2022-01. That's also something they started doing recently is for the first 10, they put a zero in front. So they always have two digits. I'm not sure what happens, though. They didn't quite consider that sometimes they go to three digits. You know, if they have a whole lot of things issued, they could be in three. Uh, apparently, we're assuming that's going to happen very rarely. So we just do it as 01. That was issued on December the 21st. If you remember earlier this year, the American Rescue Plan Act made discharge of indebtedness for certain student loans non-taxable from 2021 through 2025. And this really covered most student loans. There are some anti-abuse provisions in there, so you can't just disguise what's going to be a payment uh, of somebody you know, paying somebody to work for you. You can't just say, oh, we'll refinance the loan. The loan will now be to us. And we'll just go ahead and, you know, start forgiving that loan as you work for us. And, hey, look, we're going to escape you paying tax on all that income. Uh, no, that, that's not how this works, right? That's, that's not it. If, you're, if it is contingent on performing services, that doesn't count. There are other anti-abuse rules in there to make sure we're not trying to, uh, you know, disguise something to look like a student loan that's not. But for your average run-of-the-mill standard student loan, you have the qualification, you know, you meet the requirements if the debt's discharged, it's not taxable. Well, the problem is, of course, the lenders have all been told for years to have a requirement under the Internal Revenue Code to issue 1099-Cs whenever debts are discharged. But the IRS in this case is making an, an exception because since these debt discharges are pretty, these debt, I should say, exclusion is pretty much automatic, if you have the right type of loan and it's not this abusive relationship where you're trying to get out of paying taxes on salary by claiming somehow we refinance the loan and then you know we're going to we're going to basically discharge that or do something of that sort the IRS doesn't want to have all these 1099Cs out there and then have to deal with you know taxpayers reporting on the form 911 or I should say for, now I forgot the form number for cancellation of debt while it's excludable. They don't really want that. So what they're saying is lenders do not issue a form 1099-C for any of these loans that you've discharged during the year. Just skip that. We don't want to see this. The IRS notes that if those things are issued, it is highly likely to result in extra work for the IRS and the taxpayers and a ton of unnecessary notices to the borrowers. That rather, the lenders simply are not supposed to issue these 1099Cs. And because of that, there won't be any notice problem. At least that's the IRS's theory. Now, my guess is, given how bad lenders are at doing 1099Cs right to begin with, and I say that based on a lot of experience back in the late, uh, from 2008, you know, through the early part of the last decade and following the case law at the same time as well, let's just say lenders are bad at doing this. They're horrible at doing it. And they issue them wrong in error all the time. So I do expect some people may get these. 
If you do, you want to verify with your client that this was a student loan debt. You want to go back, check this provision in Section 108 added by the American Rescue Plan Act, verify your client meets that requirement. And then, as always, I would add, you know, I'd port it as other income and then back it off as a negative with an other subtraction and have an explanation, maybe an A275 with the explanation, so that hopefully the IRS's computer will match up the income line and be happy. And if it gets pulled because of this subtraction on the other income line, then you'll have a full explanation to hopefully solve this without your client getting you know, the return pulled for exam, without getting a CP21 because it wasn't on there, all of those things. So as I say, hopefully that works. I'd like to think the lenders will follow this notice, but my experience in the past with lenders and 1099Cs, to be totally honest, it's not all of them, but there are enough that foul this up that I'd still expect some problems to take place. Okay, be aware of that. Next up, we have a chief counsel advice issued on the 23rd of December. Chief counsel advice 2021-51005. And this deals with something that I do see a lot of CPAs and advisors getting wholly mixed up on. The problem I see, let me fundamentally explain the problem. The problem is that way too many advisors absolutely refuse to think in terms of the law. They think they don't think in terms of code sections and what underlyingly, why does this quote rule that you learned apply? What part of the code authorizes it. And the problem with that is when you just memorize rules and you don't understand the underpinnings of why that is the rule, all you know is you memorize the rule. You don't understand how far that rule applies. Is it a general rule, like we talk about under check the box, and you say your LLC is elected to be a, a corporation that made an S election. Well, that's covered by 7701 and the general S corporation election rules. And you'll understand, if you understand where that comes from, that that is insanely broad in the income tax area to determine that you are, you know, you're going to be treated as a corporation in basically virtually every income tax context that will be a, an S corporation. Conversely, if you understand the limitations and you have a client who basically is considered to be a first-time home buyer for purposes of the distribution from an IRA, and you remember back to the old first-time home buyer program we had in the late 2008-2009, the end of that aughts decade, um, you may remember that there were two different definitions and each one only applies in its very narrow area, right? Well, this is a case of the rule, right? We're going to talk about, we have two different rules involved. Under the passive activity rules, right, for passive activities, you do know that a rental is automatically a passive activity, right? Rentals are passive activities by definition. Unless you are a real estate professional, or unless the activity is outside the definition of a rental, and we know we have regulations and rules. I should say, if people are memorizing rules, they don't know the regulations. They just know there are rules for whether something's a rental or not, right? Then also under Section 1402A2, or A1, I should say, under the self-employment rules for those who will not ever touch the law, there is a rule that states that we do not, that self-employment income does not include rentals of real estate. So now the question arises, and the answer is easy if you understand where these things come from, but is amazingly easy to confuse if you don't. And we see a lot of people, I've hit this constantly, Whenever we do something with rental real estate, I don't know how many times I've been asked, well, doesn't that mean it's self-employment tax? No, right? We'll get down to why that's no. There is a very specific and narrow in, in scope definition that applies to self-employment tax. And so why I never worry about a real estate pros, rentals, generating SE income. 
you know, why I don't worry about these things, why I don't worry about if it's a trade or business for purpose of 199 cap A, that, oh, wow, it has income, it means it's going to generate SE tax. No, it doesn't. So let's talk about this and why those rental issues are not relevant. In this case, the question became asked, was there a link between the definition of a rental for the passive activity rules under Section 469 of the Code and the exclusion from self-employment income of rentals of real estate under Section 1402A1? And the answer is a very, very quick, easy no. Absolutely, there is no link. And if you actually go to the laws, it becomes clear they don't ever cross-reference each other. Neither of these laws say they apply for the entirety of the Eternal Revenue Code or even the entirety of Chapter 1 or whatever. They don't talk about any of that, right? They don't say they're very nar- they're, they're narrow and their own area only. But nevertheless, people ask this question. And this question had arisen, in this case, in an exam context. So let's talk about this. Under Section 469, a number of rentals, and let's talk about a rental. In this case, the thing that we're talking about here was like a somebody who has an Airbnb, right? And so they're operating what's a quasi-hotel type thing where, you know, people come in, they rent the, uh, let's say, condo for a day or two, and then they leave. During the time they rent it, this person is providing maid service and other high-level services. Not not just, you know, cl- basic cleaning, but all the services they would have for a, you know, bed and breakfast type operation. And the question then became, okay, under 469, that sort of rapid rental, right, you know, short-term, average stay, less than seven days, is defined under 469 to be not a rental for purposes of the automatic rental rules and therefore becomes, you know, a non-passive activity. And even if it's beyond seven days, there are cases where if you provide enough in services, it's considered to be a non-rental activity. Now, the question becomes, if we decide it's a non-rental activity, or if it's a rental activity under those rules, right? We're going to decide it's one or the other. Does that automatically lock us in under the 1402 rules for self-employment income? And as I say, the answer is no. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely no cross-references exist. In fact, the regulation that defines rentals for passive, regulation 1.469-1TD1, provides specifically characterization of items of income or deduction as passive activity gross income or passive activity deductions does not affect the treatment of income or deductions under the provisions of the code other than 469. So it doesn't matter, you know, if in fact, as they say, it's not determined where those amount are rentals from real estate under 1402A1 and the Treasury Regulation 1.1402A-4 irrelevant in those realms. Again, there's no cross-linkage, and the reg tells you there's no cross-linkage. That's why I say it's a real simple answer when people go off on these deep ends. 1402 is also a rather narrow definition. It talks about rentals of real estate and has its own reg to tell us what this means, right? That's key. Now, then the thing goes on to look at, okay, what is a rental of real estate under the regulations and the law under 1402. And generally, you know, we're looking at, in many ways, you know, the level of, is the, are services rendered a more than effectively insignificant, right? Services are considered rendered to the occupant if they're primarily for its convenience and are other than those or usually are customarily rendered in connection with the rentals of room or other space for occupancy only. If I am renting, let's say, a condo, let's say I buy a condo and my, and my tenant signs a one-year lease, right, just a standard rental of a condo, I am not going to go over and provide maid service every day, right? That's not the sort of thing I'll do. I don't provide room service. I don't provide any of those other special features, 
you know, I just provide, you know, you have the plumbing burst, I, you know, I'll get that fixed. Those are standard things provided for mere rentals of occupancy. But if I am doing a bunch of extra services, right, that makes it look like effectively the hotel level experience that I'm getting, and that will include, you know, providing maid type service and those other items, then I've got something that's not a rental of real estate. Now, while conceptually some of those items apply over there, it's not the mechanical test under the 469 rules. So in this case, we have two sets of facts here. And the memo obviously goes into some of into the backup here. But this is an individual. And the first set of facts we have is we got a taxpayer who directly and solely owns rents in the course of a trader business, a fully furnished vacation property via an online rental marketplace. We know Airbnb type structure, right? Not a real estate dealer, okay? He provides linens, kitchen utensils, and all other items to make the vacation property fully habitable for each occupant, right? In this case, in addition, he provides daily maid service, including deliveries of individual use toiletries and other sundries, access to a dedicated Wi-Fi service for the rental property, access to beach and other recreational equipment for use during the stay, prepaid vouchers for rideshare services in the rental property in the nearest business district. In this case, for the year at service at issue, the average period of rental use is seven days, and therefore the activity is not considered a rental activity for purposes of 469, right? In addition, they materially participate, right? Uh, the IRS concludes, okay, is that going to be considered uh, a rental of real estate for 1402, for 1401, self-employment income purposes? And in this case, the IRS holds, okay, yeah, it will be, it will not be considered that. Right. In this case. Right. But not because of the reg It's because it provides substantial services beyond those required to maintain the space and conditions suitable for occupancy. They specifically cite, you know, the what is there? The and let me get my right here. Bobo versus Commissioner case 70 TC 706 from 1978 that the IRS acquisition act in, as well as Revenue Ruling 83-139, where the services are considered rendered for the occupant is based on the particular facts and circumstances in each case. Here, the IRS ruled the payment made to the taxpayer for these services are for the convenience of the property's occupants. The services go beyond those clearly required to maintain the space and the condition for occupancy and are of such a substantial nature that the compensation for those services can be said to constitute a material portion of the rent. And that's probably the key here. In essence, is a material portion of what your customer is paying for the provision of those services. You know, if I go and, as I said, when I'm doing CPE courses on the road and I go to, you know, Courtyard by Marriott, uh, I expect a bit more than simply having empty space and, oh, yeah, oh, you need a bed? Oh, well, you're supposed to bring your own, right? in your own furnishings and all of those things. No, I expect that stuff to be there. I expect that they will clean the room if I'm there for more than one day, uh, as I was when I went to Tucson and I was in Embassy Suites for two days. I had two days of courses here this year. Haven't had much travel this year, so I have limited limited items this year, but I do have a Marriott in, uh, in the Rochester area in New York, and I have a Embassy Suites in Tucson. So we'll take the Tucson one. That's two days. I did expect the cleaning service, right? You have to actually ask for it these days. But you expect the cleaning service to come in. They'll take the garbage out, et cetera. I'm not required to take the garbage out and clean up my room or lose my deposit, right, when I leave. That's something I'm paying for, the underlying services the hotel offers me, right? Not the same as, you know, somebody leases a condo. And you walk in the door and the place, it has carpet on the floor, but, you know, the place is empty because you're supposed to bring your stuff in. That's a different concept. Now, they have a second set of uh, facts here. Who They said this is a individual who solely owns and rents in the course of a trader business. In this case, a fully furnished uh, room and bathroom in a dwelling via an online rental marketplace. He's not a dealer. Occupants only have access to the common areas of the home to enter and exit the room and bathroom and have no access to other common areas such as kitchen and laundry room. The taxpayer cleans the room and bathroom in between each occupant's stay. Uh, for the year at issue, the average period of customer use of vacation property is seven days, therefore not a rental activity. Taxpayer materially participates. In this case, the rental income is excluded. Notice, 
This guy is still excluding it under the passive rules, but we get to, in this case, also not be subject to SCE tax. The taxpayer does not provide substantial services beyond those required to maintain the space in a condition suitable for occupancy. Again, referencing the same background here, okay, in this case, right? That's what we're going. And what they're saying is the services provided for convenience occupants must be substantial. And whether they're substantial depends on the facts and circumstances. Right. Specifically, the services provided for the convenience of the occupant must be of such substantial nature that compensation for them can be said to constitute a material part of the payments made by the occupants. No such services are provided during their stay. In this case, remember, you know, we come in and we clean the bathroom between, right, when one person leaves and then somebody's going to come in next week and lease it. So when that person leaves, we go ahead and we clean the bathroom. Might think that'd be a good idea, right? We'd expect that. You'd frankly probably expect the place has been cleaned if you're leasing that condo I talked about for a year, right? Before I come in with my one-year lease, I expect I don't expect to come in there and find I have to basically, you know, clean the whole place from top to bottom because, you know, it was just left in whatever condition the prior occupant left it in, and I got to clean the bathrooms and everything. You know, I'm just going to assume normal occupancy, you would assume you would clean the rental property between the time you have the various occupants staying in the property. You would get it cleaned up and ready to go. So again, interesting difference here, but notice, and the problem is I see way too many CPAs and EAs and, you know, other professionals who just simply have memorized rules. And the minute they discover that this was a not a rental under the passive activity rules, well, they'll turn around and say, well, it's not a rental. It's not a rental of the passive activity rules. Therefore, it's also or it is a rental of the passive activity rule or say yeah, not a rental that it wouldn't be a rental here and would be subject to a C-tax or vice versa. They, they discover it's not a rental under 1402, under 14, yeah, 1401, I should say. And they end up, or 1402A1, and they turn around and say, oh, well, then for past activity purposes, it must also not be a rental. The two are not connected. It's really important to understand if you want to, if you want to build your skill level in handling tax matters, and especially those where we see new laws, we see new issues, you need to understand why something's an answer. It's not enough to know the answer, right? You have to understand why it's the answer. You know, knowing something the answer is the equivalent of being given in a multiple choice exam a copy of the letter answers for each question. Yes, you'll get 100% on the exam. But no, you will know nothing about this. And if anybody gives you an exam where, oh, they, you know, your, your stores forgot to give you the answers ahead of time, uh, you're going to be in big trouble. And you're probably going to get you're probably gonna get a huge percentage wrong. Same issue here. So be careful with it. IRS is sending out information letters. Your clients should be aware of this, right? Uh, to recipients of the advanced child tax credits and the third round of economic income tax payments. The letters in question, now this came out, news release, IR 2021-255 on December 22nd. Your clients are going to get one letter that's going to outline their payments for the advanced child tax credit, letter 6419. As well, they're going to be getting a second letter that's going to talk about the third economic impact payment. The, not the first one they got this year, but the third, which might have come in two different payments. Remember, that's also an issue this year because there was that rule that's a based on the 19 return and you got the 20 return in and it was processed in time and they would qualify for a higher credit based on the 20 numbers. They would gotten a second check. Well, this letter 6475 is going to provide them with all of that information. You really need to inform your clients that they need to retain these letters. First thing is, don't throw them out. Second, include them with your tax information this year, right? Desperately want to get your hands on those letters. I do wish the IRS had actually published a link to the news release, a sample copy of what the letter would look like, because sometimes it's helpful to tell the client this. If it looks like this, send it to me, right? Do that sort of thing. But in any event, you should warn your clients who are who have got probably gotten an advanced child tax credit payment and who probably have also who probably got the EIP payment that was after the uh, American Rescue Plan Act. 
get that information to us, it's going to be necessary to prepare the returns this year. That's something that you should have, and you know, don't don't just ignore it. Finally, this became a big issue. Uh, you know, if you're in the areas, the IRS announced that the hurricane aid or relief would be extended. Right, in this case, we're going to have until February 15th of 2022. Now, this is news release IR 2021-254. It was issued on December the 22nd. Now, as was noted in the release, all or parts of six states were granted special relief related to the impact of Hurricane Ada. And the states in question uh, were, you know, in this case, Louisiana and Mississippi were covered entirely and portions of New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Pennsylvania. Now, if you're in those last four states, you obviously have to go check to make sure if your client is in the area or not in the area. Hopefully you knew about that before you got to the point where you're going to be relying upon this because, you know, it's it's bad to find out now they should have filed their 2020 return by October 15th if it hasn't been filed yet. That, that could create some problems. Okay. Now, What's happened here was previously those people had until January 3rd of 2022 to file returns or pay taxes that were due between the starting date of the disaster period. And those dates ran from August 26th to September 1st as Hurricane Ada moved from south to north. Okay, so it came up, came up latest in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. Pennsylvania was a day earlier. Mississippi was the 28th, and Louisiana was the 26th of August. So you can understand how that goes. So we got right around there the last week of August, and the first day of September is when we got everybody in there. So anything that came due during that period, which can include estimated tax payments, which can include uh, tax returns, and which could include payroll tax returns as well, payroll tax deposits, all of those sorts of things were in that mix. So if you had an affected taxpayer, they had until until January 3rd. Now, quickly, a lot of people began realizing a problem with January 3rd. And no, it's not just a lot of people travel over the holidays. Yeah, that's part of it that makes it kind of interesting. But the bigger problem comes to what happens to the IRS's e-file systems at the end of a year. As you're probably aware, um, January 3rd, is smack dab in the middle of both the shutdown for individual electronic filing that takes that started back in November and the shorter shutdown for business electronic filing that started on Sunday. Actually, I'm recording this on Saturday. So from my perspective, started tomorrow. If you're listening to this, we've entered the week of the 27th. It was, you know, before the week, but essentially shut down. And some tax services, by the way, stopped accepting returns earlier than that. I believe the Walters Kluwer's uh, services all stopped accepting uh, return submissions on the 24th. Uh, you know, I, I think you actually could submit on the 25th, Christmas Day, you, you know, the IRS would allow it, just Walters, Kluwers, etc. cut off on the 24th, since I assume they really didn't want to have support staff down there on Christmas Day uh, trying to handle any problems that would occur for somebody racing to get it filed. Just get it filed by the 24th and forget it. And it won't reopen until after the beginning of the year. So January 3rd meant that you couldn't e-file and meet the deadline. And as we're all very aware, the IRS is having huge problems processing anything that is paper filed, which then led people who had clients that had taken advantage of this delay now worrying once we got past the shutdown date. And remember, we would be looking here at anything that was due for tax returns on, you know, in essence, pass-through returns like S-Corporation partnership returns that were due on September 15th. We'd be looking at individual returns and C-Corp returns on October 15th that would have been due, right? So all of those would have been in that time frame. There have been estimated tax payments due for individuals on September 15th, right, that were also in that mix. Now, the estimated tax payment you could cover, but again, the return itself you couldn't. So I saw lots of discussions on places where, tax, where advisors that have clients in this situation hang out 
who were wondering, well, would it be best to, you know, should they paper file, even though they probably won't get processed? And it means if we're trying to apply a refund to the next year, you know, that when we do the 22 returns, we're probably going to get notices based on that because it won't be there. You know, how are we going to handle this? Or do we just, or do we wait and file late when they reopen and then face the catch? We got a late filed return. And, you know, the back and forth there, which, well, which one is the better way to go? From a practical standpoint, the late filing seems better. You'd have fewer problems. But obviously, late filing can introduce trouble if there's anything in there that is, you know, dependent on a timely filed return, or even, and this could come up on exam, you know, if you have an exam later and the IRS determines that there was not a refund, but there was tax due, now you get to a failure to file penalty because you didn't timely file. So the filing was late and that could get to a failure to file. So it became messy. The IRS, I believe, even though we not told at all why they added the days, there is no reference in the news release about why the extra time has been added. But I have no doubt the IRS figured out what would happen if they forced all those people to paper file and how the service centers are simply not prepared. They are still way behind in handling paper documents. In fact, uh, on the 20th, uh, the IRS had already said, based on the uh, a news release that came out on their operations during COVID, that they still had 6.2 million unprocessed individual returns as of December 20th. And they had an interesting statement to say, well, things are getting better. Every return, they said they processed every return that was filed on paper that did not have an error or did not require additional processing. They explained some of what additional processing could require, which is a lot of this is wrong you know, economic impact payment numbers and causing issues. But okay, I'll accept that. But notice they said before April. What that means is they're not saying that they've got returns even with no problems if you mailed them in in April, even for the April 15 deadline that turned out not to be the deadline, or if you delayed them and filed them when the returns were due, uh, you know, were later delayed due, it was, you know, those probably haven't been processed, and that would be a lot of returns filed right at the end of tax season, as well as any return filed on paper that was under extension. Right, so they're behind on all of those paper returns, and you would stack these behind those. And, yeah, I just don't think the service wanted that. So in any event, if you have that situation, you now can tell the clients that we can hold that return. Submit it when we can next do e-file. Now, there's still some problems with holding it because, as the IRS pointed out, if you didn't pay enough tax with your extension back in April, that payment was due in April. This does not relieve you of the problem with the fact you underpaid that payment. You missed that payment. The other quirk in the news release that a couple of people have noticed is that the news release goes on to say that the February 15th deadline also applies, you know, to, shall we say, you know, two quarterly estimated tax payments that were due on September 15th. We knew that already. Now extending this to February is going to also mean the January 15th payment gets in the mix, right? Or would have been due on January 18th. However, what's very interesting about the paragraph is rather than saying that those estimate payments now need to go in on February 15th, rather it says this means the taxpayer in those areas can now skip making their estimated tax payments for both the third and fourth quarter of 2021 and instead include them when they file their 2020 return now that means it goes on the 1040 presumably filed at april 15th and a lot of people were shocked by that statement i think the practical reason is the service has trouble processing i've seen this in the past were clients who were late paying their fourth quarter estimate. And so they try to send it in just before they send the return information to us. Oh man, I missed this. So they're looking here, you know, at the end of February and they're getting ready to send their tax stuff in. And, oh, I forgot to do that. So they send it in. And I've definitely seen the IRS more than once post that to the wrong year. I also think the IRS looks at this as a potential major processing problem. Again, these are paper vouchers and forms that people might be sending in. Yes, they go online and pay it, but they also can just send the check. So a lot of them will do that. And will those be processed and posted 
in time to handle a 1040 that's filed by April 15th for 2021. I think the IRS decided nope, the smartest thing to do is tell them skip that February date entirely, get it paid in by April 15th. They have the authority to do that. That'll be my first issue. So it's right. So unless the IRS tells us something different, I would say this provides just as, you know, this provides the authority to wait till February 15th to file, to have to file the tax returns and other documents. It also provides the authority to wait till April 15th or April 18th this year uh, to actually pay the third and fourth estimate amounts. Basically, just pay everything with the return at April 15th and you're fine if you're in those areas. So be aware of that. The news release also repletes the standard stuff we had when they first came out with the release about how the IRS will identify people that are eligible for this relief and how you can handle it if the service is not able to identify you based on the address and provide you can qualify for the relief. So that's all there. This has been our final update for 2021. We're done with the year. We're going to go into 2022 next week. So we'll be back here like January 3rd, right? We'll be there right there, right after New Year. We're going to be ready with the brand new 2022 year. Yes, the bad news is New Year's Day when you're in tax accounting has always been kind of a bad holiday because it indicates that your kind of relief time is over and we're getting ready to head to tax season. That'll be happening. Uh, we'll talk about what happens. What do we get? What happens when Congress comes back and do they actually try to pass some sort of tax bill now after we had the whole big issue over the Build Back Better Act just as they left town? Is there going to be something come up or not? We'll watch that this year. Uh, we'll try to keep track of other things. I will be doing some sessions uh, in Arizona and for a few firms for the most part in January. So I'll be doing a few of those. So I got a few of that left before I switch over into standard tax season mode and do the tax work that all of us end up doing for clients this year. But I'll try to keep up on that. Be sure to check online with your, um, you know, your various state societies, et cetera, for discussion groups they have. I do monitor the post for New Jersey, uh, Arizona, right, Minnesota, Washington, uh, Illinois, and I keep an eye on Idaho. Oh, I should remind you, other thing, if you are in one of the now 21 states that has a pass-through entity tax, and that tax is in effect for 21, some of the states that adopted this year do not have their law go in effect till 22. But remember, according to those 2020-75, the last day you have to put money in for that salt workaround and get your deduction on a 21 return, whether you are cash or accrual basis for the pass-through entity, will be December 31st of 2021. Uh, that's notice 2020-75. That's what it states it has to be paid during the year. So just reminder for anybody working on that with a pass-through entity tax, uh, you probably have a deadline. I know at least Idaho has actually put a notice up on their website saying, hey, taxpayers, if you want this deduction on the federal return, it's not really an Idaho thing per se. If you want it on the federal return, though, you really got to get it paid in by Friday, right? December 31st. If you pay it in after that date, you pay it with the return, you're going to get your deduction on the federal 22 return, not the 21 return. So, yeah, be aware of that. Otherwise, be aware of all your other fun tax planning to do this week. And when you come back, it's going to be too late for most everything as we get back next week. And we'll talk to you about what happens as we enter the new year in the area of current federal tax developments.